Our scripture lesson today is taken from the seventh chapter of Mark. It is verses 24 through 30, an event that happens about uh, almost halfway through the gospel of Mark and therefore through Jesus' ministry. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. And a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. It has been said of Dante, he used his language to discover the world anew. May you, O Lord, who come to us as word made flesh, lead the language of scripture and sermon, prayer and praise, anthem and announcement to discover our world anew. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In Shakespeare's profile of King Richard III, who ruled England for two years in the 15th century, the playwright explores why the young king was among the most tyrannical of England's rulers. Shakespeare attributes Richard's adult tyranny to the psychological scars he received from having been born with grotesque physical features including premature teeth and curvature of the spine. King Richard himself describes what he learned later in life about the reaction to his birth. The midwife wondered and the women cried, Oh, Jesus, bless us. He is born with teeth. And so I was, Richard says, which plainly signified that I should snarl and bite and play the dog. In addition to his jarring physical features, Richard was rejected from birth by his mother, the Duchess of York. A fact his political opponents took pleasure in using against him, His deposed predecessor, Henry VI, says to Richard, 
Thy mother felt more than a mother's pain and yet brought forth less than a mother's hope. It is a combination of severe physical impairment and maternal rejection that drives Richard to become one of the most brutal dictators of his day. In our scripture reading for today, we have the polar opposite of maternal rejection of a less than healthy child. A woman who is ethnically Greek, but who lives as a foreigner in Syrophoenicia, a region near Galilee, has a young daughter who is possessed by a demon, a broad term used in the New Testament to describe any number of what we might say were illnesses, mental or physical, but threatening to life. The mother hears that a rabbi and healer named Jesus has come to her region and is staying in a private home. She likely does not know that he has come to this foreign territory for anonymity, for rest and replenishment after a period in which he has fed the multitudes, healed the sick, liberated the demon-possessed, confronted the leaders of his own Jewish tradition, and been mocked and rejected. Whatever it is the woman has heard about Jesus, it is likely the part about liberating the demon possessed that catches her attention and leads her to leave the sickbed of her child to venture to this man whose ethnic and religious heritage she does not share. Now as we read this story or hear it and allow ourselves to slow down and pay a little bit of attention, we cannot help but wonder what happens when she leaves the child. Who will look after her daughter? Is there a father in the picture? Is there a nanny or a grandparent or a neighbor or an older sibling? Might the child have a seizure and choke with being left alone? Does the mother risk her daughter's life in trying to save her daughter's life? The text is silent on these questions, but if we read it carefully and with imagination, we need not be silent. The woman finds Jesus, bows down at his feet and begs not asks, but begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now what happens next is shocking and disorienting to readers of the New Testament, ancient and modern. Jesus says to the woman, let the children be fed first. For it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This is a slur. It is an ethnic and and racial and religious slur. Jesus is Jewish, focused on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She is Gentile and foreign. And he is saying in the least diplomatic and least polite way, no, 
Get lost. Go away. They are some of the harshest words found in Scripture and they violate our image and trust of who Jesus is. They are so harsh, they drive some people away from believing in Jesus and they prevent others from ever embracing him. What do we do about that? A writer named Debbie Thomas says, the Jesus I grew up with was perfect. He had to be because of the theology we constructed around him being the divine son of God required that he be perfect. Perfect Jesus was technically human, but his incarnation actually fell short of actual humanness. He never messed up. He never felt short, fell short. He never had to say he was sorry. He always had perfect reasons for saying the things he said and doing the things he did. So if he happened to speak with harshness rather than with compassion, if he behaved in ways that were ethnocentric and rude, if he called a hurting, pleading woman a dog, well, he had reasons for it. But there is something about this particular woman, this Syrophoenician, Gentile, foreign, non-Jewish mother that does not feel compelled to accept the terms of her first encounter with Jesus. Sir, she says, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, I kid you not, you probably didn't hear this, but when I read the text, somebody, short and young, in that section, responded to the woman's words by saying, Yes! I'm not kidding. I did not make that up. I don't think that was a voice from heaven. May have been, but I don't think it was. Don't ever believe that children don't listen or pick up from worship. So be on your good behavior. <laughs> They're watching. To this woman's retort, Jesus then says, for saying this, for saying this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Debbie Thomas picks up. The problem with perfect Jesus, of course, is that he doesn't exist. The Jesus who appears in the Gospels is not half incarnate. He is as fully human as he is fully God. Which is to say that he struggles. He snaps. He discovers. He grows. He falters. He learns. He fears. And he overcomes. He is real, he is approachable, and he is authentically one of us. The good news, she concludes, 
is not that we serve a shiny, inaccessible deity who lives five feet above the earth. It is that Jesus shows us in real time, in the flesh, what it means to grow as a child of God. He embodies what it looks like to stretch into a deeper, truer, fuller comprehension of God's love. Now, it has always been a matter of speculation among theologians and biblical scholars as to exactly when Jesus knew that he was the Son of God. At preexistence, at birth, Was it when he was found in the temple at age 12? Was it when he was baptized? Was it at the transfiguration? Debbie Thomas's words lean in the direction of Jesus learning along the way, if not who he is, at least the meaning of who he is. It is a view that from time to time, parts of the church have deemed heretical. But her words fit this text in which Jesus stretches into a deeper, truer, fuller understanding of who he is. The Syrophoenician woman speaks words which, like Dante, help Jesus discover his world anew. So what's the point of all this? Early in the summer, I preached a sermon in which I said it wasn't a Mother's Day sermon. This one isn't either, but it's going to sound like it. So here it goes. It is a sermon. Apart from Jesus' reaction, it is a sermon about maternal, parental even grandparental love. It is a sermon about how such love can be ever so close to God's love. It is a sermon about how the love we have for children is akin to the love we have from a parental God. As the body of Christ in the world, it is important for the church to embody and foster such love. And it is important for us as individual Christians to do so. Children in our highly programmed, merit-focused culture need it. Children who are rendered refugees by war, by natural disaster, need it. Children in our day and time who now have to receive nervous parental coaching about what to do if there is a shooter at their school need the parental love of God. Children who hear what can happen even at the hands of those who wear the collar, lift the cup, serve the bread, 
need the parental love of God that is expressed through trusted and trustworthy adults. That is part of why we are here on this Sunday to welcome children and youth and families to the fullness of the church year. It is why we have an associate pastor nominating committee seeking an associate pastor for Christian formation for children, youth, and adults. It is why we commit time and talent and treasure to the church's building and ministry, to its staff and its programs, to its mission in our nation and abroad, so that, among other things, children in Alexandria and Arlington and Fairfax County and North Dakota and Appalachia and Kenya, in the case of this congregation, can experience the demonstrated, spoken, and embodied love of God through the love of parents and people like parents. When I said this at the early service, I realized I was looking at the back row at one of our members who I, somewhere in her late 70s and early 80s, has just not retired from teaching elementary children because she loves it and loves them. Sitting here today is one person beyond the age of parenting who has worked one if not two days a week as a volunteer teaching inner city children from the District of Columbia music. I don't even know for how many decades. Earlier this week, Ben Hutchins plopped down in my office and said, is there any way we can get adults from the congregation who aren't parents to serve as moms and dads at children's choir? Sure, I said, as if it's a simple matter, just ask them. I'm such an understanding boss. (laughs) A few hours later, Ben sent an email announcing the addition of two new choir parents for Wednesday nights, parents who were a bit more advanced in age than those who normally serve the pizza and assist in keeping compassionate order. (laughs) But a couple who will bring their own grandchildren from outside the church and stay to demonstrate the parental and divine love the church offers to all children, the bread that is more than the crumbs from the table. Since I began this story, this sermon, with a story of maternal love denied, I want to end it with a story of maternal love provided in abundance. Many years ago, I knew two men who were at the time in their late 70s. They were boyhood friends and had remained close throughout their lives. Both were highly driven, highly successful, benefactors of their community and its arts and educational and religious institutions. One of the men had been severely disabled since an early childhood illness. It was frankly painful 
to watch him try to walk. And it was painful to try to understand what he was trying to say in a conversation with you. His friend once shared with me that when the two of them were teenagers trying to figure out life and vocation and their bodies and God and their futures, his disabled friend had asked him in a rare moment of male vulnerability if he thought that he should run away and join the circus. At least then, he said, people will have to pay to stare at me. He didn't join the circus. He went to college. He went to an Ivy League graduate school. He became the CEO and chair of a Fortune 500 company. I think the only person I have known in that arena. His friend also told me what I already knew through observation. The mother of the man who did not join the circus was utterly committed to her son. She lived to be 103. By the time I knew her, her husband had long been dead. But I conducted her funeral, which mercifully occurred a few years before her son's death. In the final months of her life, she was asleep a lot. But when she spoke, even in the final breaths, she spoke with praise and gratitude and pride for her son. It is maternal, parental love. Syrophoenician love that is so close to the love of God. Amen.